and welcome to the MVP, the Mass Violence Podcast, official podcast of the National Mass Violence Victimization Resource Center. I'm Dan Smith, the Director of Resources and Technology for the NMVVRC, and I'm very excited today to be joined by Maggie Feinstein, who is the Director of the 1027 Healing Partnership. If you're not familiar with that organization, the 1027 Healing Partnership was established after the Tree of Life synagogue shootings in Pittsburgh in October of 2018. 11 people were killed in that hate crime and six others were injured, but uh, the synagogue shooting also had effects that rippled far beyond the Tree of Life community, affecting not only the greater Pittsburgh community, but the Jewish community nationally. And Maggie's gonna help us understand how the mass violence uh, event disrupted her community and also how the 1027 Healing Partnership is trying to facilitate individual and community recovery. Welcome to the MVP, Maggie. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me here, Dan. So you're a Pittsburgh native, is that correct? That is absolutely correct. So you were you were familiar with the Tree of Life Synagogue community? Yes, absolutely. So yeah, my um, I grew up in the neighborhood and my family now lives in the neighborhood. And so very familiar both with the congregation Tree of Life, as well as the neighborhood where it happened. So to use a cliche, it's very struck very close to home, literally and figuratively. Absolutely. Yes. Um, Before we start talking in depth about the 1027 partnership and the great work that it's doing in Pittsburgh, I wanted to ask a little bit about your background. I know you're a therapist. Can you tell us a little bit about your experiences before you became director of the 1027 Healing Partnership? So my mental health work sort of started with, I didn't intend for it, but I was working in Juvenile Hall in San Francisco, working with a lot of young women who inspired me to want to understand even better what does healing look like? So I went to school and then after that, I found myself living in Alaska and In Alaska, the Indian Health Service has a very robust mental health system um, that is integrated within its health system. It's it's very um, it's very holistic. It's very people centered. And I was so lucky to get to do a lot of my training within that system. I I feel like, you know, I, I got my sea legs of working in the field of mental health in a fairly unique environment. And I learned so much. I learned so much from all the, we referred in, in the Indian Health Service, our customer owners, not our patients, um, from the customer owners, as well as the different kinds of healers and helpers who worked within our health system um, integrated. And so I, I really was able to learn about about where healing happens, not in just the terms of, um, you know, sitting one-on-one with somebody and, and, and diving into it in the mental health side, but really working collaboratively as a team, finding areas where as a team, we can validate someone's experience. We can try to work towards, uh, towards their physical as well as emotional healing, and then find sometimes spiritual healing as well. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I mean, that seems like it must have been kind of a culture shock, you know, uh, uh, a young woman from Pittsburgh who finds herself in the Alaskan Native community um, doing mental health. Uh, I, I know that trust is really important in therapeutic relationships in general and also within tribal communities. Uh, what kind of lessons did you learn about how to establish trust with folks whose background was so different from yours? You know, it, it, um, 
I found in, in a lot of ways, I, I credit the young women I got to work with in San Francisco in the juvenile hall for really teaching me that we're all experts in our own lives. Um, and so establishing trust was really making sure that I always approached everybody and, and really believed that that they were the experts in their lives. And if, to be a sounding board means to really enter that humbly um, with reverence for what their experience might have been, that I would have no way to understand it except for what they share with me, uh, letting go of any sense that that I would know better anything. Um, and so, so I, you know, it it is amazing, you know, that to be able to be in a situation where you're just learning and open in that way. I, I I learned I learned a lot about how to connect with people when we don't have a lot in common. How to um, be so curious about their experiences. And so, did you move kind of directly from that to moving back to Pittsburgh? Yeah, you know the the the, the grandparents were calling, and gotcha. It's, it's a far trip. Uh, absolutely, I, I I can't imagine that. Um, Hey, let's take a, a quick weekend trip to Alaska is is kind of a thing that that folks of an older generation would be commonly up for. But in, in terms of your profession, I'm really curious, like, what was that transition like from moving um, from a community that was very much not of your own to move back to a community where you did know folks? I I can see that in some ways it might seem easy, but I also wonder if some of the previous relationships you had in the community might actually make that more difficult for you. So I, I did have a job um, that was happened in between from when we came back from Alaska to um, before the current work I'm doing in the 1027 Healing Partnership. So there was a little bit of a transition and and it is relevant, I think, with maybe your question a little of working with other communities and then learning um, learning the challenges of working in my own community. But we, um, when we first moved back, I tried to work in our healthcare system here in creating a more integrated system. But, you know, as we know, it's it's a little bit different when we have private insurance versus public systems and, you know, and, and work through those challenges. But in that work, I was so fortunate to get to work in a neighborhood of Pittsburgh that having grown up here, I actually spent almost no time in. And it's one of the things uh, when we think about the the impact of the shooting in um, at the Tree of Life Synagogue in my neighborhood, that it's one of the things that's very interesting about Pittsburgh is how so many people are multi-generation of a neighborhood. People stay put very frequently. And so I was working in a, a neighborhood that wasn't mine, um, not where I was from, and one that I actually wasn't familiar with at all. So I continued working in communities that were new to me, even though it was my city. Um, and, and I learned so much there, too. Um, the learning from um, somebody else's perspective, a city that's so familiar to you, mm-hmm. what, how they see it, what they see their city looking like. Um, I was so grateful for that, too. That's cool. That, that sort of gives you a very different perspective on the very familiar um, that, that you know. Yeah. So you, you mentioned um, or, or you referred to the way that Pittsburgh reacted to the shooting. And I, I was going to ask you to expand upon that. How did Pittsburgh react after the Tree of Life shooting? Um, you know, one of the things that um, I, I hear constantly is that there is something amazing to be part of a city who stands together to say not here, um, stands together very clearly to say anti-Semitism is not tolerated here. 
Um, so, it, you know, people who have different religions, different neighborhoods in our more tribal city who maybe didn't interact as much immediately showed up with a very clear message that anti-Semitism is not something our city is going to tolerate. Um, our government did the same. So, so I think that, you know, the, the horror of what happened and the horror of one individual's actions balanced by the, the real clear message from our neighbors, from our city officials, from our faith leaders of other communities was that we will not tolerate anti-Semitism. We all stand together with that. That's that's terrific. I mean, as, as you know, we here in Charleston were affected by the Mother Emanuel shooting. And, uh, you know, I don't know that it was obviously exactly the same um, kind of coming together that Pittsburgh experienced. But Charleston very much had a, a, a similar kind of experience. And it, it, it was it was amazing to just sort of see how certain um, decisions, certain individuals um, reactions to the shooting really set a tone for unity and community-based healing uh, within the city. And, uh, you know, that, that seems like something Pittsburgh uh, also did just incredibly well. Yeah. And I think faith leaders, especially, you know, and, and I think you're aware, but but our faith leaders who were impacted here were, were, were really held up in that beginning stage by some of the faith leaders from Charleston who were able to say, this is the unthinkable and we're here together. You're not alone, um, understanding each other. And then, you know, it was one of the things that was really inspiring here was a lot of, a lot of our churches reached out almost immediately to say, where are you going to have your high holiday services? Please let us help you. And, and they did, they, they opened up their churches. They made them comfortable for the congregation to come and have have their high holiday services in a Catholic church. That's so cool. Uh, one of the things that uh, you know we still deal with here, we recently had the six year anniversary of, of uh, the Mother Emanuel shooting. And you know as time goes by, we still realize that there are lingering effects of what happened six years ago. And I'm just curious, three years after the Tree of Life shooting, what are the sort of remaining issues or, or lingering effects in, in your community? I mean, the truth is there's so many. Um, you know, I think the, the complex trauma of having a mass violence incident that so shook the sense of safety um, of where you live and how you practice your religion, followed so closely by the global pandemic and having to make the adjustments people have had to make. I think the truth is we, we don't even know, but we see there's a lot of lingering effects. Um, and there's one you know salient piece between the pandemic and the experience of this mass violence incident, especially because unlike Charleston, we, we were not able to open up the Tree of Life synagogue again for worship immediately. And so it's been closed. So people were displaced from um, from where they had been before after the shooting and then, you know, displaced again with the pandemic to not be able to gather. And so much of the healing happens in community with each other. And so I think that we are still we are still um, grappling with the what will be the lingering effects because we haven't yet exactly found safety. Mm -hmm. We haven't yet exactly found um, whatever, whatever can be the sort of that rebuilding ground. And, and, and I think we're still working to get there. Am I correct in 
what I think I know that, that the tree of life is still not open for services? Yes, absolutely. That, so, so your question, I think of um, what are some of the lingering effects that, that we're now really working collaboratively as a community. They, um, one of the really important things to know is that the Tree of Life Synagogue was a place of worship for three different congregations mm-hmm. um, on the morning of October 27th. There were three congregations actively there worshiping. Um, and so, you know, the, the Tree of Life building um, has remained closed and those three congregations are worshiping and di- were before the pandemic worship, worshiping in different spaces. Um, and the building right now, um, they're working on what the what the reopening would look like. But um, but there was a lot of work that needed to happen in the building. Uh, and there was a, a clear call for it to be a thoughtful process deliberative process, one that that brought in the stakeholders and and um, and really gave voice to people on what would happen next. I can relate, I think, to some extent. Uh, I, I was only I was on the periphery of, of the group from our center that worked with the Mother Emanuel group. But I know that there were some similar, you know, I think from the outside, it it seems like, OK, it is a church. It is a synagogue. But there are lots of differences of opinion and different constituencies within a single uh, congregation, or in your case, three congregations, that it's not just everybody speaking with one voice. And I think that that is a very difficult minefield to try to tiptoe through and and to have basically that times three uh, in in your case must be really tricky. It is. And you think about, um, especially when it's an attack on people's right to, to worship freely, um, that that valuing pluralistic uh, worship is actually really important, but it, it's one of our challenges too. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, I wanted to, to shift gears slightly here to ask some more specific questions about the 1027 Healing Partnership or as an organization. The 1027 Healing Partnership is, is what Technically, um, the Office for Victims of Crime considers a, a resiliency center, correct? That is correct, yes. Okay. So I actually think that you are the first resiliency center director that we've had on the podcast. Oh. Welcome. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, I'm honored. So I'm hoping that you'd be willing to help us understand what a resiliency center is and what the 1027 Healing Partnership in particular is doing for your community. Um, thank you. And, and I am so grateful to the National Mass Violence Victimization Resource Center at helping us understand this question, because when I first was getting started, I realized that there were so many things that are not clear about what a resiliency center is. It's fairly unique. But, you know, the way that it looked here and, and the way that I conceptualize it is that, you know, when something terrible happens, there is a recognition by Office of Victims of Crime that that the impacts will be widespread that they will be lingering and that there will be ripple effects and that there's a responsibility to start to build the framework so that communities are prepared for that and don't get surprised. And, and, you know, the idea is to, as I think of it often, and this comes a little bit from my medical background is to do no further harm, right? That we can't necessarily change what happened before, but we have a responsibility to try and stop the, the, the harm that's caused by that kind of event and do what we can to support the community who's been impacted. 
but I think, you know, that to your question, since I'm the first Resiliency Center director, and one of the things that we learn a lot as we talk to um, our, our colleagues in different areas is, is that it is such a unique way to start an organization um, with that mission. And, and it's, um, you know, it's amazing because you get support from some of the national thought leaders and these consultants who have so much more experience. But then as a local community, you sort of have to figure out what does that look like? Um, what does it look like to do that work in a way that's authentic, in a way that meets the needs of whoever you're serving? Um, and that, you know, that, that uses both best practice, but also thoughtful consideration of, of who it is who's in front of you. So that sounds like uh, a Herculean kind of a task. Um, I'm wondering at the, at the very kind of molecular level, if, if someone were to visit the 1027 Healing Partnership, what would they find there? Is there, are, are there therapy rooms? Are there, is there a gym, um, a swimming pool? You know, I, I, I'm being a little facetious here, but like what is the scope of services and support that, that you're able to provide to folks in your community? So the scope, uh, I'll start with the scope and scale, the second part of your question. The scope and scale of services really is um, we are providing um, as sort of counselors, individual counseling, um, as well as group counseling. We look at that as a model that, um, you know, that one of the things that our wise OVC consultants, when when they were helping us design, said there's no wrong door Mm -hmm. um, and there's no wrong door for help. So, so by creating a new door, we want to make sure that people can walk through, they can, they can be heard, they can be validated, they can um, connect with somebody. Um, we also are a gathering place. We believe that, that when people come together to share honestly how they're feeling, that they already are getting better, <laughs> they're working their path towards healing. So we wanted to make sure that it was a comfortable place for gathering. Um, and we, you know, this, some of the scale and scope of what we do includes commemorating, um, remembering, believing that, that, that holding the annual commemorations, remembering with other communities, some of the pain they felt and the people who have been lost to them is an important part of your healing as well. Um, so, I mean, I think that in terms of scale and scope, we look to do that for our community who have been directly impacted. Um, we often conceptualize it as an onion and we, we, at the core of our onion are the victims and the families who lost their loved ones, the survivors, the, the people who witnessed. Um, and our next layer of the onion really is our first responders and our congregations and the people who, who really were um, directly impacted. but. Um, in, in the next layer out. And then, you know, you can imagine continuing the layers out of the onion, recognizing and respecting the different ways that this event impacted people. Um, and, you know, that that sometimes it's not just about this event. One of the things we respect with trauma is that um, the person, people can, can have multiple events and they overlap or they don't overlap. And there's times in which one is much more painful or difficult. And there's times at which another is more painful or difficult. And so, um, so really offering and opening up our door for people who, who have experienced other events as well. And we, to your question of what does it feel like if you walk in, you know, we are unique, I think. I'm not sure of any other um, any other resiliency centers that are located in a sort of full service community center, but we're in the Jewish community center here in Pittsburgh. 
And that was a decision made before I came on board by our stakeholders of community between the congregations and some of our nonprofits and mental health organizations decided that it would be placed here. And so, you know, when when we were designing the space, we realized there's lots of other space in this building. There's places people can exercise. There's early childhood programs. There's um, seniors programs. Uh, there are there's a center for loving kindness where people can engage in, in volunteer projects. There's a lot of other things that happen. And so the the goal of our space was really to create a corner that can be reflective a place where people can come and feel safe with whatever emotions they're feeling. Um, they can engage in self-directed healing, like meditation or biofeedback. They can talk to a counselor, or they can have a cup of tea with somebody else who might be having a hard day for whatever reason, and know that they're not alone in that. That sounds amazing. It's not really my place to judge, but I, I actually think the idea of co-locating within a JCC is a, is a wonderful idea. Um, it, I think it sort of normalizes the experience of being there um, yeah. rather than, you know, going to this sort of unique place that might have positive associations, but also some inherently negative associations as well. But integrating that into a community center sounds really smart. So um, kudos to you and your entire group. It sounds like you've really done a great job in creating a space that your community can, can take advantage of. Thank you. I do say to people, you know, I, I like the way you said normalizing, that if you walk in in your bathing suit, but you can't make it to the pool, it's okay to come to it's okay to come to our space instead, right? That that we all have days where we think we can make it to go exercise, and we just the emotions, the the lethargy, whatever it is, it makes it too hard. And and to know that that's normal and that's okay, that's why we're there. That's that, that's really very relatable, I think, to to a lot of folks. What advice would you give to resiliency center directors, um, either current or future resiliency center directors, when um, they have to interact with faith-based institutions or communities after mass violence? Are there some tips or best practices for interacting with those groups that, that you would recommend? That's a great question. I would recommend they connect with the National Mass Violence and Victimization Resource <laughs> I, you know, I think I would, I would say that, um, and I've learned this mostly actually since I've been doing this work, is that all religious organizations are a lot like families, that there is an element that we've, we've all created in, in, in the different religious organizations we're part of to feel familial. And that sometimes when we look at families, we say that is not a functional family, <laughs> but that remembering that all families are functional even when it looks dysfunctional. And so, you know, religious organizations so often are operating with no paid staff or very few paid staff. They are operating with what we call in, in the Jewish tradition, I think some other places also use the term lay leadership, but community members who give immense amounts of time to make sure that the doors are open and make sure that there's a spiritual community and home for people to come to. So, you know, when when you are responding to a religious organization, I think learning learning the way the road the ways of the road, the the rules of the road of that community, of how how they organize themselves, how decisions get made. Who are the different players in making decisions? Because I think there's no way to know. It's not it's not a nonprofit where there's an obvious, 
you know, board and executive director and chief financial officer. Very frequently, our religious organizations are much more communal and, and grassroots in terms of how they operate. And they, you know, they the times where it can feel hard to figure out exactly who makes which decisions or how to find the right person, um, the more time you spend just just really giving in to that you'll get it wrong a couple times <laughs> and you can stay curious um, because it's not going to ever be obvious, but that, you know, just like any family, that there are effective ways that they make decisions. There always are ways that they move forward. There's always ways that they support each other. And sometimes at first glance, you can't understand it. And so it sometimes takes a little bit longer to, um, to understand, but that, that it is, you know, as I've learned, you know, in our community, that our religious organizations are so valuable for community resiliency um, and so, you know, making sure that we elevate the voices of the lay leaders, we elevate the, the work of the congregants, um, the silent work that they do to, to make a space where, where people can come worship together that's welcoming. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's amazing to me, really, the, the ecosystem of religious organizations and how they are such valuable things for resiliency. And a lot of us, until we are tested on it, don't, don't know how to, you know, we can take it for granted. That's, I mean, that's such an insightful comment. I mean, I, I recognize so much of, of what you were talking about there in terms of sort of the apparent dysfunction, the time it takes to really feel like you understand how a, a church or a synagogue or any other faith community actually operates. You know, there's, there's what's on paper and what people might tell you, but then there's sort of the peek behind the curtain about, as you say, you know, the congregants, the lay people who, who do some of the work that isn't so obvious. I mean, I think that just really shows how well you've, you've learned and understood uh, your community. And I, I think that's awesome. I, I actually wanted to shift gears one last time here and ask sort of a more personal question. I, I wondered, you know, because you are from the Squirrel Hill community where the Tree of Life Synagogue is located. Um, and I imagine that you had family members and friends who were directly affected by the shooting. How did you personally find yourself coping with the aftermath? Um, I'm in particular wondering if your role as the director of the Resiliency Center put any pressure on you to sort of demonstrate model coping um, or sort of be perfect. And you know, that's, that's a difficult mantle to take on uh, when you yourself are affected by an event. And uh, if, if you're willing, I'm wondering if you'll share some of your process about that with us. Yeah, you know, so, so in some ways, um, fortunately or not fortunately, the, it, it took almost four or five months for the stakeholders to come to the place of being ready to hire someone for the directorship of the Resiliency Center. So in the immediate aftermath, that wasn't my role. I was still working in another neighborhood. So on the personal side, I will say that um, that there's that like I said, we're we're as we're a city of neighborhoods, and those neighborhoods are very much part of our identity. And so this neighborhood being very much part of my identity, I had about four days where I couldn't leave it. I couldn't, you know, I, I couldn't drive on the highway to go to my job. Um, I felt like it was a I, I sort of had to be here. 
And, um, and that was, you know, I, fortunately, my job was flexible enough and they, they, you know, I'd leave and I could do that. But, you know, personally, I, I needed to not go through the motions of life. I needed to sort of be very grounded in my, my sense of home. And I'm glad I did it. It was, it wasn't, you know, at the time it, it actually felt like I didn't have any other choice. I couldn't fathom what else I would do. And, you know, then, you know, a little bit of your early questions about, about that, um, being both being a sort of a professional within your community, a professional in another community. When I went back to work, I, um, I hadn't realized that most of the patients and the providers I was working with in the hospital, um, I was one of the few Jewish people they knew. And I don't know that I even knew they knew I was Jewish, <laughs> um, but I had people waiting. They said, you know, we were so worried about you. We hope you're, you know, that your family's okay. We were thinking of you. It was very touching to me that when I, when I, the, the experience of needing to sort of hunker down and, and be grounded in home. And then when I left that, I felt very cared for. I felt very um, embraced and validated. And I had, you know, I, I felt like that experience was something that um, really lifted me up and helped in my own personal healing and grieving um, to see that it wasn't just our community. I didn't need to hunker down, that actually the whole city was ready to embrace. And I felt very, um, very validated. So in my own personal healing, in some ways, that was um, that was helpful. But I think then to your second part of the question, which um, I think goes a little bit to advice to resiliency center directors, you know, it, it is really hard. It's hard to um, to feel the loss and to also sit with other people who have felt the loss. It also, though, is incredibly, um, I think, incredibly helpful that it, it, maybe this is true even more in our community that that I do feel the loss, that I'm not, I'm not approaching this job just in a removed way of a professional or just a sounding board. I want my community to be resilient for my kids. I want, you know, they, I want them to feel um, freedom of religion. I want them to have the opportunity to go with their friends to their synagogues the way that we did growing up. You know, we, um, the, I, I sometimes to, to illustrate what, what life in Squirrel Hill was like, the, when I was a child, the the rule was you go to Sunday school wherever you slept Saturday night. Um, and so, you know, while I was never a Tree of Life member, I probably went to Sunday school there more often than I went to my own, you know, my own synagogue as my with my family. Um, but nobody seemed to care in those days. And of mm-hmm. course, things have changed. Unfortunately, that's not the world our kids are growing up in. They There's security. There's a lot more rules. There's a lot more sense of of needing to know who is where and who they are. But I think that we need to invest in the in the healing and the resiliency of my community so that my kids can have some of that experience mm-hmm. of feeling accepted, feeling as though these religious organizations are places that they can consider home, even, you know, whether we're members there or not. So, you know, I think that there is something really important to the personal experience for me of feeling that it's not serving others it's it's serving us i feel i feel like it's a we that's a, a profound sentiment and and i appreciate very much your your sharing your personal reaction and, and experiences with us that's that's very generous of you thanks for asking i think you know sometimes i i forget that part so i appreciate that dialogue and you asking um, one last question, Maggie. This has been just 
fascinating conversation. Uh, but if anyone is interested in contacting the 1027 Healing Partnership to learn more or to access uh, resources that you might provide, how can they reach you? So they can um, always just come to the JCC if they wanted in Pittsburgh and, um, and go to the front desk and they'll call up to us. You don't have to be a member of the JCC to come to us. Um, we'll come down and we'll meet you and, and, and bring you up. The website, www.1027, which is 1027healingpartnership.org. Uh, we have our office. We have our phone number. Um, we also, you know, really encourage people to find us on social media. We we take extra, you know, care to make sure that we are posting things, hopefully, that can help others to not feel alone, um, to feel like there's community around some of the more difficult things that that witnessing and, and sitting together in the difficult things is, is helpful for healing. So we really encourage people. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. Um, and, and I would say that, you know, very authentically, I, I am inspired by the staff that I have who work on it because they put themselves into thinking about what messages we can project for people to not feel alone. Well, as someone who supervises uh, an effort to promote uh, a violence-related organization on social media. Um, myself, I think that your staff does a wonderful job and that your social media presence is excellent and that, that they do a great job crafting messages um, that do uh, achieve the goals that you were just talking about there. It's, it's pretty impressive, and I encourage our uh, our listeners to to go check that out. Um, we've been talking with Maggie Feinstein, the director of the 1027 Healing Partnership in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, uh, an organization that was established in response to the Tree of Life synagogue shootings. Maggie, it's been wonderful talking to you. I can't tell you how much I appreciate your perspective. You win the award for first resiliency director on the podcast. And uh, I think you did a great job of explaining what they are. And I can't thank you enough for your time today. Thank you so much, Dan. I really appreciate your questions. And I really, I mean, I can't say enough how much I appreciate being in community with the National Mass Violence Victimization Resource Center and the other resiliency centers in the country. I find so much wisdom and strength and, and I'm so grateful. It really is, uh, I think, a, a, an incredible community. So yeah. thank you. Uh, this has been the MVP, the Mass Violence Podcast from the National Mass Violence Victimization Resource Center. Thanks for listening.